Well, I've got 9.30, so I guess that's start time. We are in Romans, the first chapter, and we are going to uh, attempt to get through Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. And I'm going to say attempt because there's a lot of material in this section of Romans. And given that our society is really just, you might as well just take it out of Romans 1, 18 through 32. I want to spend some time talking about this chapter, this section of the chapter, because of its relevance to our society. So... If we don't get through it all, we don't get through it all, and I'll make up the time somewhere else, but it is just so important that we make some, some practical applications from what we're reading today in verses 18 through 32. We just don't need to apply it to the Gentile world back in the first century. We need to apply it today to us. So I'm going to spend some time looking at some things uh, thank you. Um, that are relevant to us. And again, what are applications that we need to walk away with from this section of Romans 1? Last week, we looked at, we studied the first part of Romans, and we had some basic concepts that we looked at. Number one, the gospel was prophesied through the prophets, and we looked at how. Uh, we looked at certain prophecies that foretold of the coming gospel. Second, the gospel is Christ-focused. It is looking at the life of Christ, his deity, his burial, his resurrection. That is the gospel. And that through, then, that gospel that is Christ-focused, that is the power that God has, that he's using to produce an obedience of faith that results in salvation. So, this week, we're going to be focused on this weekly briefing. I talked about that last week, so I won't bore you, but I will have to apologize. My printer messed up again. I'm not quite sure how the weekly briefing in your lesson was for chapter 5. But it was... It is, so that's my, my, that's my bad. So what's up on this slide is the weekly briefing for this lesson. And if you notice, it is the Gentiles need salvation because refusing to honor God as God resulted in their spiritual depravity. And I really want to hone in on this concept of honoring God as we get to that section of uh, chapter 1. So, with that said, first question that I ask is, against whom is the wrath of God revealed? All ungodliness and unrighteousness. All ungodliness. So, again, if you think back to uh, verse 17, Paul has just made this, the affirmation that the gospel is God's power for salvation. It is through faith that man is righteous. Okay? And so he now goes and uh, uh, begins a 
logical process of showing that to be the case. I want you to picture him as an attorney, if you will, that is presenting evidence for why we need the gospel. Because if the gospel is intended to save man, what is therefore implied? Man needs saving why? From what? From sin, yes. And so, if there is sin, what does that imply? There's evil, but what does that mean? Uh, what, if there is sin, separation, but what? what? Transgress what? The law. The, a law. Okay, just let's say a law. Okay? And so, whose law? God. Okay? And that's really where he starts. He starts with the fact that God exists. Because if we don't start here, nothing else matters. And so in our world today, more and more people are denying the existence of God. So in our evangelism, where do we need to start? In many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases, where do we need to start? Proving God's existence. existence, Okay? I'll talk more about where we are spiritually as a society coming up in just a minute. So, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature, having been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. Okay, so then I want to then go to... Uh, this idea of, it's actually question three, but I'm going to sort of bounce around a little bit. My question said, identify the three causes for the Gentiles' path into spiritual depravity. Don't know if causes is the right word. So let me just do it this way. There are three factors that Paul talks about with reference to the Gentiles in proving that God exists. Talks about knowledge, talks about honoring God, and talks about thanking God or thanksgiving. Okay? So, let's go back and look at just a couple of things that I want to bear forth. If God exists, but people don't follow his will, what happens? Separation, but what as a society happens? There's a breakdown. I don't know who. Okay, I heard that from the back somewhere. Phil. People believe there's a God, but it's their own God. They make something else their God. Yes, yes. So keep that in mind, guys. So what I, what I kept thinking about is Judges. Judges. Judges, the second chapter, verses 10 and 11. What is that all about? The people of God, Israel. 
They did whatever was right in their own eyes because they were the standard. Okay? So, keep that in mind as well. So, Paul then goes and says, these people knew God. They had the ability to know God. And how did they, how did God prove his existence? Let me, let me just phrase it that way. How did God prove his existence to the Gentile world? The natural world. The natural world. And why was that important? Everyone could see it, but would God be a just God if he did not reveal himself but then held them accountable? No. No. And we got to remember, God is a just God. So he displayed, he showed himself through nature. Psalm 19. What does Psalm 19 say? 19.1. I mean, it's got several verses, so you got to read my mind. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is, is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for, them, for the sun which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. I'll I'll stop there just for sake of time. What is nature communicating to people, to man today? God's existence. I mean, think about fall, the autumn. We see the change of the seasons. You think about spring. You see everything rejuvenating. And does it happen haphazardly? In March, winter comes. Well, well, if you're in the south below the equator, I guess it could be. <laughs> Sorry. But in the north, north, north of the equator, okay? It just doesn't happen haphazardly, right? We can know that in the north part above the equator, North America, that winter comes in December. Autumn comes in September. Chris. It takes an equal or greater amount of faith to think that that was accidental. Absolutely. Absolutely it does. And so I really want to stress the creation tells us of God's existence. Think about, um, think about Acts, the 17th chapter. Paul is in Athens. And he is reasoning with the Greek philosophers and things like that, the people like that. And what is his uh, point here about God? Yeah, an unknown. Yes. So they have an unknown God. But he's a God that's not served by human hands, but he gave life to everything. And he made from one uh, every nation of mankind to live on the earth. He, uh, you know, set their boundaries of their habitation, and it's through him we, we live. And so the Gentiles had a recognition of a God, but they weren't worshiping him as, uh, uh, as God. 
So I, I, I want to stress the fact that there is a, a knowledge. They had a knowledge of God. They had the evidence around them that there was an existence of God. Hold on, Jonathan. So that's number one. Okay? And then we'll go to number two in just a second. Jonathan? Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. So uh, the key word that um, kind of puts the truth to what you're saying is in verse 18. They are suppressing the truth. Mm-hmm. It's not that there was something that could be that was totally unknown to them, uh, couldn't be known by them, and you've borne that out very plainly. But it's this idea of suppressing the truth. You can convince yourself of any lie. You can mm-hmm. deceive yourself or be deceived by others as long as you're suppressing the truth. And that's really the key to what's going on here. It's mm-hmm. not that um, uh, they were really actually ignorant, although it's a type of ignorance, but it's a self-inflicted ignorance. Yeah, excellent so point. Truth. Thank you for, for bringing that out. Um, so I, I want to I set that point as number one. But what's number two? What had they failed to do? They, they had failed to honor God. Now, I, I want to make a couple of points here, or actually several points, because from here, what, can, what, what conclusion can we make? They knew God, but they failed to honor him. What conclusion can we make? Bingo. It is not enough just to have the facts and figures. Okay? We could know everything in this book, but if we fail to honor him as God, it is all for naught. Also, you could say that because of that, we know that God is worthy of honor and glory. If it says they didn't do what they should have done, it, by default, we know what they should have done. Yeah, right. And, and so this idea of honoring God is this idea of praising him, magnifying him, uh, and recognizing his omniscience, his power, his authority. Okay? So... I want to I take a step back for just a minute as we think about the fact that knowledge in and of itself is not sufficient. That we've got to recognize God for who he is and what he's done for us. And so when you think about, and this goes back to this idea, Jonathan, of suppressing the truth. Because when we think about the world that we live in, we flip on the news or go to the internet and we read the news. And we see what's going on in our society. We have all of this scientific evidence, right? For the existence of God. For a designer. For a creator. We can look down to the mini school of the, the cell itself. Okay? We have all of these images and pictures of life in the womb but what is man doing going back to Jonathan they're, they're, being, they're suppressing the truth they're suppressing what we know scientifically 
to be factual because they want to do what they want to do. And so I also want to say this. We need to be careful it's not a they. Do you understand what I'm saying? We need to look inward to make sure that they isn't we. Okay? Now, we'll talk a lot about that when we get to chapter 2. But there are some points I want to make because there was a pew, and this is here. Now, again, this is research. It's on the Internet. You can take it what it's worth. But it's from a reputable source, the Pew Research Center. They, re- they released a report on September 13, 2022. That's less than a month ago. That's pretty, pretty recent, pretty relevant. So, and I don't have, obviously, time to read this entire report. It's very detailed. But currently, in 20, and this is based on 2020 data, 64% of Americans, and they include ch- children in this, we're Christian. Now, understand what the report is deeming Christian. Got it? 30% are what they classify as nuns, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S, to get my southern dialect clarified. So what they say is unaffiliated uh, religiously, 30% of the U.S. population. Okay? Got that? Now, and they did several studies, and in the study, they're projecting what we're going to be like by 2070, which is 48 years away. Did I do my math right? I'm not very good in math. Ask my wife. Um, But anyway, the long and short of it is, based upon different modeling, you could actually wind up with Oh, and they also say this. Within this, okay, the current, the current rate is that for people, they, they, call, they, they term it as switching, okay? So they may be Christian now, but what are they going to be later? Does that make sense what I'm saying? That's switching. Currently, there is a rate of 30%. For switching. And the prime time for switching is between the ages of 15 and 29. Okay? So, the unaffiliated, there is also a switching. So don't look at it just one way. The unaffiliated can switch to an affiliated or to a Christian, quote unquote. That rate is 21%. You see the gap? Okay, so if nothing happens, okay, if it's continued steady, then 46% of America by 2070 will be Christian. Okay? Then, if they, if they uh, do uh, switching without limits, meaning anybody can switch, because there, there were some parameters, and I, again, I won't bore you. But the bottom line is, by 2070, they're estimating between 35 and 54% of America will be Christian, quote unquote. Okay? Because what you're seeing is a larger and larger percentage 
of Americans being totally unaffiliated, secular. Okay? Now, why am I going through this? Because it all has to do about knowing and honoring God. Okay? Now, I'm going to go off on a, what may appear to be a tangent, but given the statistics of what this, this research has shown, I think my tangent needs to be said. Because we need to instill in our kids an honor of God, an honoring of God for who he is, for his glory, his majesty, his authority. So, why do I say kids? Because how, will kid, how do kids learn the concept of authority? Through their parents. So, if we cannot teach our kids the concept of authority, we parent-child, how are they ever going to learn the concept of godly authority for someone they cannot see? Okay? Am I making sense? Are you getting where I'm going? So I usually don't do this and read some things, but to me this is so important given the society that we, are, we find ourselves in, that we have got to instill in our kids a concept of parental authority because without it they will not, or it's going to be very tough, to instill in them the concept of godly authority so they can have the proper reverence for who God is. So, okay, I admit, in three months, I'm going to turn 60. So, I want you guys, especially you younger ones, to consider what I'm about to say as an older man who has lived through raising kids. Don't make the same mistakes I have. Because my wife kept me grounded. Because I didn't see a lot of things that I now see. So don't take this as an old grudger, old man. There's a reason why I'm saying what I'm about to say. We, we have got to instill in our, parent, our kids parental authority. And how do you do that? Let, let, me, let me go back and say this. Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Notice verse 2. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise. So, again, kids, if they don't know how to honor your, us parents, again, how are they going to honor God? So I thought about some things just from parenting over the last 37 years, okay, that I want to instill in you younger ones who are either raising kids, who haven't yet had kids, or you have kids on the way. First off, again, as I said, you got to teach them authority, your authority as a parent. If they don't understand that, 
They're not going to understand God's authority. They're not going to understand the authority of government. They're not going to understand the authority of a teacher. They're not going to understand the authority of a boss or anyone else who is in a position above them. But I'm going to say this. Being a parent is not being a friend. I think too often we want to be a friend to our child. There will be time to be a friend when they're older, when they're out of the house, when they're on their own. You can be a friend. But when you're raising your kids, do not be a friend. You are a parent, and there will be times you're going to have to wear army boots. Being a parent is not about negotiating with the kid. The kid is not the one in control. You are. You're the parent. And too often, I see parents negotiating and compromising with their kid and giving their kid five and six chances before administering discipline. If you, don't, if you cannot look at your kid and change behavior, you have no control over that kid. Do not start out by saying, telling the kid what you're doing, and then ask, okay? Again, you are an authority. Do not think that is, as a parent, you have to explain the reasons why you've said yes or no. God didn't. Has God told us the reason behind everything that he has said or revealed in his word? No, he hasn't. There will be things that you do want to explain to him or her, Johnny or Susie. Because you can set forth biblical and godly principles in showing them why you've made this decision. But if you can't connect it to a biblical principle, it is okay to say, because I said so. You know, exercising parental authority isn't about protecting Johnny or Susie's self-esteem. You need to crush it every now and then and put that self-esteem in its place. And then also, parental authority is about executing tough love. And I'm going to go to Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23:13 Do not hold back discipline from the child although you beat him with a rod he will not die you shall beat him with a rod and what will you do you're going to deliver his soul from Sheol Let me also go on to Hebrews 12 Hebrews 12:11 12, Actually, I'm going to start with verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's the end game. And as parents... 
don't lose it. Don't lose sight of the goal. Because if you lose sight of the goal, what's going to happen? Exactly what happened in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. You have a society totally out of control. It's the society that we live in today. Again, going back to Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, we've talked about this idea of obedience and honoring. Verse 3, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the what? Discipline and instruction of the Lord. There are two components. Again, it's not enough just to teach God, teach our children the facts and the figures of the, of the scripture. We have to discipline them, bring them up in God's ways through discipline so that they have that sense of honor of who God is. And I'll just say this in my closing remarks on this topic, but we have got to stop bowing down to the idol of human wisdom and use this book as our guide to parenting and not a whole bunch of books on the shelf that have no clue how to raise children according to God's path. You want to get holy and holy children? One who are not only know the scripture and honor God and thank God, and we'll get to Thanksgiving in just a minute. It's this book. It's not some book off the shelf in a library. So, I'll come off my little soapbox, but I feel like as you look around today's society, if, I, if you remember nothing else but that weekly briefing of how do you teach a child how to honor God. So, let's move on, and let's talk a little bit about this concept of thanks, thankfulness. Thanksgiving. And when you think about it, what, if we're thankful, what is our, what is our attitude? Content, it, contentment, is that what you said? Contentment and joy. But let's take it a, let's take it a step further, or maybe back or up. Appreciation. Appreciation of who or what? Of God. Given. Because being thankful recognizes that it is not us who accomplished something. It is not us who's in control. That our that that gift of thanksgiving, recognizing that there is someone else. And so when you think about um, you know, Philippians 4, 6. I think that's maybe where you were going to, with a little bit. Yes. Um, you know, First Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, this concept of being thankful. That's something else we need to be teaching our kids is thankfulness. But you do all of that through what I've just said. You're teaching them. You're teaching them to, be, to honor, and you're teaching them to be thankful We've got a whole generation of people who are not thankful. They have no clue how to be thankful. And so here I just want to, again, impress upon them, impress upon you that um, 
uh, of these three things. Now notice, going back to Romans 1. <coughs> so I'm going to finish. I'm going to go back to verse 21 and then go on. For even though, <coughs> excuse me, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculation and their foolish heart was darkened. Again, they looked inward. They looked to themselves. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I um, just wanted to say, um, you kind of touched on it just a, just a second, but um, it's not only the kids that have the problems, it's the adults that have the problems because in today's society, you see it in politics, you see it around the world, mm -hmm. it's more deflect than, than, than accept. And it's more, it's more, I'm going to blame everybody else but the person that's looking me in the mirror. And, um, and not taking responsibility, blaming everybody else, and just having this, well, we're just going to love and accept everything, has destroyed America. And what I want to impress upon the path not to get to where you've just described is by teaching our children so that when we raise up, we're raising up a generation of people who aren't this way. Roger. One of the things that I think we fall short in as parents, and I'll have to say I didn't do this with my children. You need to start talking to your children around the age 14 that they're going to leave your house and they're going to be have to make a choice, am I going to be a Christian or am I not? Because a lot of times our kids follow our examples and when they go to college, they just forget all about being a Christian. I think we do a bad job with teaching them that they're going to reach this part in their life and they're going to have to choose right. And we need to start talking to them at 14, 15 years old. My children, when they got their driver's license and their car, it became rough. The teenagers are rough to begin with. And yes, um, we, we need to be teaching our, talking to our kids. But I'm going to say this. I, I'd move it up. I'd say two, one, two, three. And that's when we start teaching our kids as we're reading these Bible accounts and events. And notice I didn't use the word story. So I don't want the kid to think it's a fictional story. But these things happen. They are accounts. They're events. We need to be doing that from the very beginning. Not to take away from anything that you talked about, the, about the importance of instilling discipline with our kids. Mm -hmm. um, but kids are very good at um, seeing patterns and detecting inconsistencies. So before we discipline them, we have to be examples to them of what, how they should be acting. Because if they see us doing something that we shouldn't be doing, and then trying to discipline them, it will, it will um, provoke oh. them to anger. It will yeah. cause frustration. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So now, going to question four, for the, I know time is getting away, but then I asked the question, 
Due to their wisdom, and I put that in quotes, what three things did the Gentiles exchange? And so to that point, I want you to think about it in this way. Based on their human wisdom, what did they exchange? Mm-hmm. So let's look at each of these three. And notice how he starts. Because I think there is a progression here. You see that. So notice, beginning in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and did three things. One, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So step number one, they exchanged the glory of God. And I could not help but think about uh, Exodus 33. So let's go to Exodus 33. Exodus 33, uh, beginning in verse 18, and this whole section really goes on into chapter 34. And we'll we'll hit the high points here. So basically, beginning in verse 18, Moses requests of God that he might see his glory. That's verse 18. I pray thee, show me thy glory. And so God consents. Uh, request his 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 prayer, <coughs> and cho- and tells him that he will put him in the cleft of the rock, as he and co- and will cover him with his hand while he passes by. Okay, and so let's move on to verse five of chapter thirty four. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, yet will he not, let me rephrase that, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And notice Moses' response in verse 8. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. So, what do we learn about God's glory from this passage? could not see him face to face, but also that he was so humbled by what God allowed him to hear and see that he fell to his face and he worshiped and he loved his Lord for it. Okay, so, yes, so we see the greatness of God. We also hear his compassion, his loving kindness, the fact that he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So there's this justice component of God. And to Leanne's point, the response 
then is one of humility and reverence to this great and awesome God. Mitch, I think you have a comment. I mean, it's, it's what we talked about before this, which is knowledge leads to honor, which leads mm-hmm. to, glor- uh, to yeah. thankfulness. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And so what had the Roman or the Gentiles, rather, as a society, as a group, what had they done? They, they changed. You know, this concept of exchange is I've got this. Well, I don't want this. I'm going to go and do this. And, you know, think about it, you know, holiday season's coming up. You get this gift, and you're thinking, ugh, I don't want this sweater. So you're going to come over here and get something else, okay? That's really the concept. It's the Gentiles, I don't like this. I want this. And so that's what they did. <laughs> they looked to their wisdom and change something that was glorious and magnificent for corruptible man, for the birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. I mean, that's, but that's what they did. That's what the Gentiles do. What has our society done as a whole? We need to be careful as a people that we don't do the same thing. That we look inward and that we're not exchanging God's glory, God's authority, God's commands, God's wonder and salvation for something that is carnal and earthy. So that's number one that he did, or that they did, was they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for something that was carnal. The second is the truth of God. So let's move on. Uh, let's go to verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So why did they do that? They, they exchanged the truth. Why did they do that? Well, let me give you some insight to where my mind was going. We'll first go to 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter. And we're going to have to stop because the, uh, I sense that Matt will be ringing the bell pretty soon. Notice in verse 9, and 2 Thessalonians 2. That is, the one who's coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, and that's speaking of the man of lawlessness, going to verse 10, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They didn't value God's word. They didn't love God's word enough to live by it. It's not what they wanted. They felt they had something better. And so they discarded God's truth for a lie. And, you know, I also thought of this. Going to 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, we looked at that last quarter. What, did, what do people think of the word of the cross, God's truth? It's foolishness. That's stupid. And so then what do they do? They go and do their own thing. 
because they exchanged the truth for a lie. And we're going to have to stop there. I'll pick this back up with God's order. We'll also talk about this progression that he, Paul actually goes through and, and what resulted from each of these things that they exchanged. And then we'll conclude and move into chapter 2. Thank you.